Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of Ranching Reboot, the podcast that reboots your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. I'm your host, Brian Alexander, and this is episode 139. I couldn't have made it to 139 without the support of my amazing patrons on Patreon.com and the subscribers on Spotify. Spotify subscribers and patrons on Patreon get an ad-free version of the podcast and some other really cool benefits that you can check out at www.patreon.com slash redhillsrancher or click the link in the description. For all those of you that filled out my listener survey, I want to give you a genuine thanks. I got a ton of great feedback about who you all are, what you're interested in, and it's going to help me deliver what you're asking for. Thank you again for your time to fill that out for those that did. As we approach the end of the year, I'm working on a great plan to bring you all some really great content next year, so stay tuned for that. If you're in Santa Fe this week for the Cavera Coalition's excellent Regenerate Conference, make sure you come up and say hello and shake my hand. I'll have a pocket full of my brand new sticker designs. They're all really cool. My favorite is the Bear Spraying sticker. You'll just have to see it to know what I'm talking about. So come shake my hand, ask for a sticker at Santa Fe, and you can get one months before I plan on listing them for sale on the internet. I don't have a whole lot else to talk about in the intro this week. This past week, it was really busy. I tried to get rid of my Jeep and get something better that's a little more comfortable to drive and gets better fuel economy. Don't forget to check out the Q&A and episode poll questions on Spotify. They are a great opportunity to connect and let me know what you're thinking. You can also share your thoughts with me. Just send me an email to redhillsrancher at gmail.com or use the contact form on redhillsrancher.com. Don't forget to check out all the links in the show notes. There's some really great discounts for Blue Nest Beef and Wild Ass Soap. And for all you sportsmen, outdoorsmen, and landowners out there, check out Land Trust. If you can dream of an activity on your ranch, Land Trust can help turn that dream into cash. Click the link on the show notes to learn more. My guest today is one of the most requested guests in the history of the Ranching Reboot podcast. So I packed up some gear and I went out to my dad's house and I convinced him to do a podcast with me. We sat down in front of the fireplace on a cold October day, and I gave him a chance to tell his story in his own words. So you're not going to want to miss that. Stick around after the ad and wait for the music. You know the deal. We'll see you on the other side. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dad, thanks for uh, sitting down and doing this with me. I know you've got normally a busy Saturday schedule of football and Formula One. <laughs> Appreciate you taking time today to do this with me. Um, you're probably, since I started the podcast, you've probably been one of the most requested guests since I started. I don't know if you know that or not. Oh, well, no, I didn't. I can't imagine who would want to hear anything but... We'll give it a whirl. Seems like about once a month somebody's like, well, when are you going to get your dad on? When are you going to get your dad on? So, okay, let's let's go ahead and do that. Um, why don't you start off, just tell us, just briefly give all the listeners uh, just kind of an overview of who you are, and um, then we can kind of go back in time from there. 
Well, who I am? Uh, <laughs> I'm uh, Walter Andrew and Doris Skinner Alexander's second son. Uh, yeah, I've lived in Barber County almost 80% of the time I've been alive. So, uh, a little history. H.W. Skinner, that'd be my great-grandfather, came into this part of Kansas about between 1890 and 1900 from Centralia, Kansas. Don't know much about previous to Centralia, Kansas, but um, he was a mule skinner, thus the name Skinner, and he would introduce himself as Skinner's my trade, Skinner's my name, so you can take that for whatever it's worth. He was quite an entrepreneur. He invested in a lot of different schemes. <laughs> um, Anyway, he started in piecing together land in Barber County, like I said, around 1890. By the 1900s, he'd accumulated quite a bit of land. Uh, I have some original warranty deeds signed by the then president of some of the land he purchased out here in the Deerhead Township, uh, where he paid very little per acre and so much for the homestead after the people had gained the rights to the land. So, um, yeah, he put together quite a, quite a sizable piece of, of area in Barber County. Do we know how much land he had at, at the biggest point? Because I remember, I remember hearing stories about your mom, my grandma, being able to ride her horse from where she grew up north of Lake City to this ranch and never leave Skinner Land? Well, uh, there was about a mile in there he never owned. But, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of speculation I've heard. Uh, Candy Jacobs, uh, my great-niece down at, I guess she'd be my niece and aunt. I don't know what she was um, for sure. But um, she was a Skinner, and she kept a lot of uh, photographs. And Candy and I have looked. Candy has since passed away. And it was, it was amazing in the late 1910s and 20s. There, she, Candy had pictures of sheep on the ranch. And we're not talking about a few head. We're talking about large numbers of sheep. When I moved here, there was a gentleman working over on the the Robbins Ranch. His name was Mexican Pete. And Pete told me stories about D.W. and H.W. taking him down to Juarez, Mexico, and they and buying sheep and putting sheep in a box car in a livestock car on the railroad and shipping them to Lake City, and uh, Pete's one of Pete's occupations was to make sure each car had a Mexican in it, and uh, we had our own own stockyards that had an unloading chute along the railway down there at Lake City, so 
that was basically the headquarters. Um, so I think Don Skinner was born just about the time, that would be my granddad, about the time that, uh, he, I don't know when he was born, in the late 1880s or someplace right in there. He passed away in 1968. H.W. Uh, passed away in the 40s. I very, very faintly remember him. Uh, anyway, that was in Medicine Lodge. Uh, his wife, Lulu, um, I hated to go to her house to visit because uh, you sat in a chair. You didn't say anything till you were asked to say something, and then that's all you said, and you better damn sure keep your P's and Q's together, so... Yeah, that was that was quite an experience. So DW built a house north of Lake City and finished it. My mother was born in that house. I think it was was nineteen seventeen. Uh DW probably and grandmother moved into it probably in fourteen or fifteen. So and my my Aunt Betty's uh my uh, cousins Pat and Mickey on that place now, and uh, they have a, a person that lives up there. But I um, I lived in Lake City, which was not part. Of, it was it was Lake City. What what was Lake City like in the nineteen fifties? Wow, we had all Calico had the the uh, hotel. Um, she was a wonderful hotel cook, and there was several people that lived there. And um, while I went to school in Lake City, that's where I had, that was the, the lunch program was right over to Mall Calico's, which wasn't probably less than a half a mile. There was um, Fred Lake's hardware store, which was a unique hardware store that was sold out and there was antique stuff galore in it. Uh, the bank building was, the bank had been deserted, but um, Fred Lake had, or uh, Russell Lake had a uh, big equipment shop next door to it. and That was on the way back and forth to school, so it was always fun to see all the big tractors, Caterpillar tractors and stuff he had in there. We had a couple of filling stations, and uh, you know, it, I don't think there was a population of more than 250 in the late 50s, 60s. But we had a, a stockyards there, and uh, I can remember the steam engines uh, coming into Lake City. And the reason for the railhead was there was a jet mine over at Sun City, which was west five miles, so. They would load the strip cars and send them into Medicine Lodge to the mill. So that was the main reason for the the railroad. Uh, Sun City was a kind of rough, tough town. Uh, of course, that was mining was their main thing, but it uh, it had Buster's, a famous uh, bar that I think it opened in '47 and. They had, <clears throat> on the side of the pool hall, an old boy would come in and put up a, 
a sheet. We'd have outdoor movies on Friday and Saturdays. And if, if he collected enough money, we wouldn't have to watch cowboy movies, uh, hippity. Anyway, I can't remember some of those, but Tarzan and if he raised enough money. And, you know, it was a, I think it was a nickel, maybe if you donated. And my mother and father would always say, well, you don't go into Buster's. Of course, that was the first place you went because <laughs> they had an ice cream soda bar. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a booming town. It had, uh, it had a hardware store. The Howe Hardware Store, a couple of um, filling stations, uh, two Byzantes and the Ward Groceries, and uh, you know it was quite a quite a town, and uh, there's a lot of history behind Sun City and Lake City. So in the in the forties and the fifties, I lived in Lake City until um, I was almost seven, and then we moved out to the North Ranch, uh, which is North Lake City that my cousins now uh, operate. And I lived there till I was 13. And it was, um, you know, it was, to me, it was vast. And uh, I had a lot of, a lot of fun growing up there. Uh, Jimmy Martin was my best friend. And he was a few years younger than I am. And a few years younger than my older brother and we got into a lot of we did a lot of wild and wonderful things out there but Don Skinner my granddad didn't allow myself or to to be around where the men were working but um was that because you weren't old enough or he didn't want you around? Or? It was, he was a Presbyterian and a pretty authoritarian type person. And he was very large and he would take the, my mother and father and the two, my brother and I and grandma on business trips to El Paso. And we would pull into a restaurant and you wouldn't order a meal. He would order for you and, uh, pretty damn well served you and you shut up and you ate what you were served and you didn't waste any food and that was that was him so he you know he was the one that put it together it was well he didn't his dad did but he kept it together and in the late 40s 47 48 um he got involved in the gasoline oil business and that's probably what saved all of the Skinner land was the oil production that he found. In fact, the field out here at Deerhead is called the Donald Field. It was kind of a wildcat found formation, and it's still producing some wells, not like it did in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, but uh, that's the way oil production goes. I I remember coming out with my father to the Deerhead Ranch, which was this, that's what this was called because it was in Deerhead. It was purchased by a man named Stuart, and Stuart was a land man. And you got to remember in the late 1890s, 
Uh, the Rockefellers were big in up at Belvedere. So Belvedere is, um, Belvedere's what, 15 miles to the northwest up the river? Something like that, yeah. And, uh, at one, and the North Ranch was, was purchased from uh, the dissolving of the Rockefellers when they decided they didn't want to be in Kansas, they wanted to be in Arkansas. So that's, uh, that ranch was purchased by, from a man named Miller uh, back, I think that was someplace around 1905, six, someplace like that, but it was expanded and that's when they built the North, the North Ranch. And like I say, I think it was finished sometime around 10 or 12, the house and barn up there. But uh, yeah, it, uh, where were we at? Uh, uh, you're talking about DW and history. Uh, oh yeah, you were still you're still living north of Lake City. Yeah, he uh, he actually got involved so deep into the oil and gas business, and he hired uh, uh, a young man out of out of Wichita to be his right hand accounting business manager, and I got to know him very well through the years and uh, the Skinners HW and DW. DW owns, owned a few heifers sometime in the late 30s, um, not very many. So they basically leased their ranches to Hal Cooper out of, um, down by Woodward and Fort, um, by Woodward, Oklahoma. And I can remember them having come up here and there would be they always fed the crew at the river ranch headquarters and mabel swinson was the was the chief lady and she she had chickens and anyway um the table was massive and when the bowl came by you better take what was in the bowl because it didn't come by the second time it was cleaned up <laughs> dw <laughs> He lived in Medicine Lodge at that time, and I remember my cousin Pat and I liked to stay in there because it was a big house that they built with a bomb shelter This when they moved to Medicine Lodge. The big house up on Stolp on top of the hill? Yes. It was finished in the 52, I think, and he built the basement as a bomb shelter, so Pat and I would... That was my cousin Pat, and I would uh, stay with him. And D.W. would drive out to Lake City for dinner, but um, he liked to smoke his cigar and sleep on the way back. So I was the one that got to, to drive a, a new Ford or a new Oldsmobile from Lake City to Medicine Lodge. And he would know if you went above 45 miles an hour, he'd wake up and about losing his cigar and <laughs> tell you, you need to slow down. And, you know, that's not what I told you to do. So he, um, he was a big man. He weighed over 300 pounds. And you knew when the belt started in whistling through the belt loops that your ass was about to get warmed up. <laughs> there probably was no run from that. No, there was no run. There, that was, uh, you stood and faced the music. 
that you had created. So, yeah, uh, we left. My dad and granddad couldn't get along. It's a typical son-in-law owner relationship that I've learned about since. And we moved down southwest of Springfield, Missouri, to Marionville to a dairy farm. And now realizing that I came from a ranch that had approximately 6,000 acres to a farm that had 480 acres, but those 480 acres were probably produce as much as several thousand acres out here. Did, did the Skinners ever have any dairy cattle north of Lake City? Not that I know of. Okay. Dad and Mom usually had a couple of cows that, uh, you know, they milked for milk and butter, but I don't remember more than one or two maybe. Okay. But, uh, yeah, it, uh, whenever they'd work cattle, I was, uh, I was, I just didn't, I wasn't, I went, I couldn't be around. That's, you didn't ask questions. You were done as you were told to do, and that's the way it worked. And you didn't say, I'm bored, because you said, my mother would say, well, go outside and find something to do, which I was very capable of doing a lot of things outside. <laughs> I I remember some of the stories you've told me about you and Jimmy Martin and that little tractor you had. We, we, we could get to that later. Boy, how yeah, it was a deal. I, I wanted to make an observation about, you know, that the culture, the agricultural culture, that sounds really messed up, but the mindset back in the 40s and 50s that you're talking about that DW had, like children are only meant to be seen and heard. We don't want you around when we're working. You stay away from the men. And I, I contrast that to, you know, where we're at today. Like, you know, with Tim or with Nate, when we go work cows or drag calves, the kids are all there. The kids are there, you know, especially with Tim. You know, his kids are uh, eight, nine. I think, they're, I think they go from about eight or nine to about 15 or 16. And uh, his one son shows up on this little pony that's about chest high to me. And that kid will get up there, and he will swing that rope until his arm falls off. <laughs> and I think it's just awesome that we can get some of these kids out and let them let them hone their skills on livestock, like whether it's you know riding, roping, whether it's you know doing the rope and drag and the corrals, or just basic stockmanship and livestock handling. We can't be waiting till people are, you know, in their teens or young adults to teach them that stuff. We've got to build those foundations early. Yes, we do. Yeah, my brother being that much older, he did a lot of farming with my dad. And now Don is seven years older. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I I was envious, and uh, finally, our last our last year up there. The last two years, I got to go help Dad farm, but uh, you know it was just a different culture uh, than it is now. So when we moved to Missouri, um, I got there, and the next day I started the eighth grade in school. And remember, at Lake City, I was the only kid in my class, and I walked into that class situation. There was fifty-five. 
that was probably a little culture shock. Uh, I, I, yeah, you could call it culture shock. I didn't know what the hell was going on. Um, we lived almost two miles outside of town, and uh, yeah, that was that was an adventure. That uh, yeah, that was an adventure. Went through high school there and uh, had a dairy farm. And when you have a dairy, a dairy and a farm, uh, you milk cows twice a day, and there's calves to take care of, which was my duty, and pigs, which was my duty, and um, gathering the cows every morning and gathering the cows every evening which preluded me ever practicing football or basketball after school because I was to be home and working. Um, I had great, great tractor skills, so instead of being one that picked up hay bales like a lot of my friends from school at Marionville had to pick up Hey bales, I got to ride a tractor and either mow or rake. So uh, I was, that was, I, and, uh, a wage, that was unheard of. Um, you, you got to breathe. Yeah, you got to breathe. You got to have a place to sleep. You got meals. And uh, later when I, <laughs> we moved in the next year, uh, I would have been able to get a learner's permit and Kansas, and in Missouri it was 16, so I had to wait a couple of years, and um, I rode a bicycle back and forth to school, or walked, or hitchhiked parts way on the bus, and... Uh, was it uphill both ways? Uh, yeah, and snow, and you know, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I knew, you know, I had places I could park my bicycle if I saw the bus coming, and uh, the bus guy, the bus guy didn't wait. You know, if you weren't standing there, or or heading down the lane, the lane was over a quarter of a mile long. And if he didn't see you coming, uh, you might as well just walk to school. I could walk to school before the bus got there. Um, you know, that was that. And uh, so graduated from high school, went to work the next day, and the next week I started uh, trade school, and. That lasted a year, and then I got a job in in uh, Springfield. Hey, you got to slow down. What did you go to trade school for? Draftsman. I because uh, I could draw. I have this amazing a vision that I can disassemble things in my mind any way I could then, and draw them and make it all look like it was an exploded view. And I drew a lot of. I drew a lot of stuff when I was in grade school and high school, cars and, you know, things. So anyway, I was a draftsman and worked for a year as a draftsman. And then where did you work? It was called Rayco. It was, um, they built suspension systems for semis, the back suspension system, uh, leaf springs, uh, introduced an airbag system. And this was in 61, 62. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, the engineers liked me because I could, I could roughly draw what it would look like assembled on a rear end of a 
tractor. So that was that was fun. Um, met a lot of cool engineers, which I desired to be. And when I left there and started school, well, I started school and held that job part time for almost a, a semester. And then it was obvious that if I wanted to keep in school, I needed to be in school. And the Vietnam War was getting cranked up, and John Kennedy was killed, and you know the the world and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And you wanted to you wanted to keep your ass in school so you didn't have to go to Vietnam. Yeah, that was basically the the idea. But when the Cuban Missile Crisis and Kennedy was killed, um, a couple of the engineers there at Rayco talked me out of of joining the joining their army, they wanted me to wait and see what, uh, what, what took, what transpired with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Where were you and what were you doing when you heard the news about John Kennedy? I had just bought a 1963 Malibu, Chevy Malibu, 283 four-speed super sport, and I at noon, I would go outside and clean that car, and um, I was cleaning the car, and I noticed that uh, there was several uh, upper upper management that were Catholics. I saw them leaving the building in a big rush. Of course, I didn't know what was going on, and at the end of, I don't remember how long we had for lunch break, but when I walked in, that's when I found out John Kennedy had been killed, and it was, you know, it was a, it was a very moving time in my life, in my lifetime. It was uh, quite impactful uh, going through that, and watching it on TV, and Walter Conkright. It was, it was powerful. It was powerful. That whole, that whole ten days was 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 just mind-boggling, but uh, yeah. Okay. So, so I uh, finished college, uh, went to work in St. Louis, McDonnell Douglas for a period of time working on the Gemini B. Nobody knows what that is. The Gemini B, uh, uh, the Mercury was the first, it was a single capsule. It's when Alan Shepard rode into space, um, suborbital, and then the Gemini was a two-person two capsule, and it sets some endurance records. And anyway, the Gemini B project was, was rushed in when Apollo Griffin, white and young, died in the oxygen fire on Apollo in the, on the test stand. At Cape Canaveral, the government decided that there needed to be a backup for Apollo to put Skylab up. And Skylab was an orbiting space station. And I was in line and uh, went to work and was a draftsman on that project. It was quite exciting at that time because space was, space was the new frontier. It still is the new frontier, so... After a while, I had a chance to go back to school and um, got my bachelor's of fine arts from 
what's now Missouri State and uh, graduated and went to the University of Oklahoma and got my master's degree in art and sculpturing. And uh, So how did you go from being a draftsman and working at McDonnell Douglas on the Gemini B space program to a master's of fine arts? How'd you get there? Uh, When I was a senior, a junior in in college, uh, John Walker came in to be the sculptor instructor, and John introduced me to utilitarian tools, which, gee, was what I'd grown up being on the farm and the ranch in Kansas, and it just really, he really clicked and got my creative uh, sense is really going, and uh, I made quite a few pieces my senior year out of welded steel and uh, was successful in selling them. And uh, after that excursion with uh, McDonald Douglas and John Walker being a, a, a mentor, um, I just wanted to go back and get my master's and and following John's footsteps of being a, a teacher, uh, a sculptor, and I... He had a really fun nickname for you. What was it? Chief Sanding Plastic. <laughs> because I got into uh, fiberglass sculptures painted with, then it was acrylic lacquers, and uh, there were several people around in the Springfield area that being being race car crazy and car customizing crazy, uh, I did. I was exposed to that quite early. And gee, when I got into art, you mean I can make these crazy creations and uh, people buy them? And when I was at the University of Texas, I was quite successful in selling quite a few pieces of sculpture in the. Houston, San Antonio, I and the Austin scene. And what happened then was that was when the Arabs embargoed oil. And gasoline went from, you know, 25 to 30 cents to, oh my God, it's now 60 cents a gallon. And fiberglass resin went from... <laughs> Uh, maybe a dollar a gallon to seven dollars, nine dollars. It was nine dollars a gallon, which really hurt my uh, budget for making fiberglass art. That kind of led into trying to find jobs teaching, and my grandmother was sick up here, and I decided, along with my ex, that. Um, the future in Kansas looked pretty prosperous and that we should come up here and uh, try to help my grandmother with uh, my granddad Skinner's estate. And so in, uh, I think it was in 75, 74, 75, we moved up here and uh, I worked, we moved early in the year and uh, I went to work on the ranch as just a a hand, just, you know, I don't remember my wage. It wasn't much. But um, part of the part of that whole thing 
existed as the Skinner Ranch Estate, D.W. Skinner Ranch Estate, was quite large and my cousins and my aunt and my mother <coughs> in business meetings, it was obvious that there was not a desire to sell it, but a desire to separate it. So they would have their, their part and mother would have her part. So that little process took my ex and I damn near, well, it took over five years to, um, to get everybody involved that wanted to be involved and on the same page to, to settle the partition and divide the Skinner ranches and the assets that my granddad had acquired. So it was quite a process. I, I uh, learned a lot about estates, estate planning, uh, lawyers, accounting, because um, that's what I was dealing with. Uh, and it wasn't just, oh, show up to the office it was have your shit together, have all your facts together, have your papers together, and reasonings and thought process behind it and present it. And my cousins did the same thing. And like I say, these were these meetings maybe happened twice a year. So you had to be ready to move when they happened. And, uh, you know, it, it, um, it developed a lot of my... Uh, my abilities to understand people and uh, to work with people, to, you know, uh, to listen. You got to listen to learn and learn to listen. And I didn't know that phrase at the time, but uh, I had a great mentor in Rollo Thompson. Uh, he was my granddad's uh, executive, his estate. Uh, he was from the University of Kansas. And he just so happened to be in the same fraternity system that I was in. And one day, Rollo, I didn't know this about Rollo till this one day. And it was along towards the end of the five and a half years of settling, the getting the partition right, that Rollo um, grabbed me, shook my hand, and signified that he was also a SIGAP. And, uh, Gave you the secret handshake. Secret handshake and the secret words. And uh, it meant a lot to me. He couldn't favor me, but he sure guided and mentored me through the partition and my cousins and my aunt and my mother and I were very happy with the division, and we signed the papers, and in uh, April of 1984, I became the manager and owner of the Deerhead Skinner Ranch that we named the Alexander Ranch. So, b before we move on from here, you know, and yeah, this was 40 plus years ago. And we're really spoiled today because we've got email that can instantly communicate, <coughs> you know, pretty much anywhere. 19, you know, early 80s, a letter could take seven days to get from here to Kansas City. Um, 
for anybody that's kind of facing a similar uh, family separation negotiations to try to figure out how they're going to divide up an estate, because there's going to be a lot of those in the next few years um, with a lot of, with trusts that have undivided interest between multiple parties, just to keep it kind of simple. So through all that process and looking back, what would be some advice that you would give to somebody looking at a situation like that with a complex family dynamic and a large estate to split up? Get help. <laughs> There's, and I can't remember a name. There's several people that run uh, businesses facil to facilitate succession plans and facilitate family meetings. Uh, we had the excellent person in Rollo Thompson and at that time, Gordon Penny, the lawyer, and my cousins and aunt brought in another lawyer, and they all seemed to to be able to communicate and get us to communicate. So just, you can't start too too damned early on, on your estate planning. This estate that my granddad put together actually came from scrap pieces of paper that H.W. had in the 30s when he died and how my granddad had to give his H.W.'s brother's family, that's the Jacobs, the piece of ground that they have down part of the estate that they have in Lake City. So, you know, I was, I was awestruck by when those layers of the onion started in unfolding how complex and how well thought out uh, HW had been and DW's uh, estate was outstandingly uh, simple compared to, compared to the complexities that existed within it. Um, you can never wait too late to get started and get the levels of communication between the parties, and you have to put all those damn prejudices as well. He got a new. I, I hate to stop you, but we got to take a break. I got to pee real quick. Okay. Oh, okay. We're back. I, I'm sorry. I needed that. Just drinking too much coffee too fast this morning. <laughs> so we were talking about DW and HW and record keeping in estates. Yeah. And say that's when Rollo Thompson came in. I think he started to work at 47. That's 1947. Um, the man was a genius um, in accounting and being able to explain stuff and having the capacity to listen to people. Uh, that was the one thing that I carried through this process and other processes that life has presented me with is shut, shut up and you know, shut up and listen, because um, everybody has their, everybody needs to be able to talk and have what they're interested in exposed so that you can move forward. Uh, doesn't do any good to yeah yeah people, and like I say, this was very important uh, partition of this ranch. And One of the things I remember you telling me you know, in a previous conversation several years ago we had about this subject was you thought it was really important 
for everybody in the beginning to be upfront about what they want and not try to not try to hide things and and try to work against each other so they can get more or get exactly what they want. It's just be upfront. Be upfront in the beginning and be like, this is how I want this to look. Yeah, well, my aunt and my cousins didn't know exactly what they wanted, but once I figured out what they wanted, then the solution, the partition took place really fast. Just part of a little side note, one of the first meetings we had on partition of the ranch was the exact settlement that we did over five years later. But we had to go through all the gyroscopics and all of the yayan and all of the, well, how about this and how about that? And <laughs> when I presented it again, it was like nobody knew that it was the first proposal I made. So I learned a lot about negotiations and uh, still have a lot to learn. But uh, so that's 1984. So. I was living here in 75, and by 78, 79, that's when Brian and Mona were born, 76 and 78, um, I was uh, going into the, uh, at then it was called the Soil Conservation Service, which is now the NRCS, Natural Resource Conservation Service, because they had, they had, they had people that were experts in grass and farming on their staff that didn't cost anything. And I just thought that was just such an amazing thing that here was an agency that I could ask questions and they would try to answer it. They weren't telling me what to do. And through that I met Glenn Snell, which was a range specialist, and through that I got to know Bill and Judy Lee because Glenn was saying that in order to control this eastern red cedar population growth, we had to burn. And this was in 1984. This it, was in 1980. That early mid 80s. Yeah, that we got started doing, and at that time we called it controlled burn. Now, how crazy did the community think you and the Lees were? burning pastures. Well, they didn't have to think, they knew. <laughs> you know, it was just a foregone conclusion. When I got this ranch, the word was out that I would last maybe a couple of years because I was I didn't know what the hell I was doing. No what, problem there. So what did it look like? In it was a damn cedar junk forest. You know, on the ranch, there was approximately 60% of it had cedar trees, and out of that 60%, there was about half of that that at that time they were saying was 70 to 80% canopy covered. Now, we didn't have digital imagery, and we didn't have all the stuff. Now we, now we know that well, that was in the neighborhood of maybe 50 cedar trees an acre, but they were big trees. And, you know, uh, there, was, there had been several wildfires on the place, and... It was obvious where those fires were at. I had no correlation with that. I was just trying to understand how in the hell 
we were to burn and burn Bill and Judy. You know, we burnt, one of the first burns up there in Bill and Judy's was, was almost 2,000 acres. Did it get away from us? Oh, hell yeah, it got away from us when we were eating lunch. You know, go figure that. But Bill was, was, was so keen on understanding everything about what was going on, whether it be the cow business, the oil wheel business, or fire. I called it the Bill Drill. What went well, what could have gone better. And we never dwelled on what went well. We dwelled on what went, what could go better. Not what went wrong, because that starts putting you in a negative mindset right. and not an improvement mindset. Right. We were improving. It's what, what, what could go better. And we had these little one-cylinder Briggs and Stratton flathead engines. I don't know what size, maybe five horse. And I don't know. We had a lot of them because uh, they ran, you know, six, seven hours a day. And you rebuild them. You rebuild them at the night, so the next day you would have have a pump, uh, roller pumps. Um, the first couple of years, Bill had an old John Bean uh, cattle sprayer on a trailer. And one time we were up there burning, and the fire was going across the fire line, and Bill was trying to get Judy to back up with a pickup with a trailer and the hose got round around the wheel and pulled the hose off of the sprayer and the sprayer was spurting water. And yeah, that was, that was, I was laying with uh, Pat Lee on the ground uh, in the black and Pat looked at me and he says, I'm scared. Where's my mommy and daddy? And I'm going, Oh, it's okay. Later I told Pat, I said, you weren't only scared. I was scared too, because you know, we had a fire. It was out of control. One of the, Ed Coger was involved in this, this too. And Ed, Ed was quite a carefree type of individual and had a, has a large ranch up there. And the, at that time, we were all learning together. And Ed said, well, it never got off the ranch. So it was a never an escape. Okay, that sounds good. So we went with that a lot of times. Well, I, I can remember. I think it was in the 90s when we were burning East Elk with Eddie Coger. And, uh, of course, the Lees were there. We were there. Um, and Paul Cox. And it was kind of <coughs> late in the afternoon. The fire had got away from us. And I remember Paul was on the radio really wanting to call the fire department for backup, really thinking we needed backup. I remember Ed getting on the radio and being, damn it, Paul, don't call anybody. It might be away from us, but it's not out of control till it leaves the hash knife. Yeah. Yeah. I learned a lot from Ed. He's very gifted with fire because he came from the Flint Hills and uh, learned a lot in that period of time. So I got possession April the 1st of this ranch, and through 83, I was preparing to burn my first burn, which was the West Cell, which was 2,200 acres. This was the first burn I ever had. Um, burn up probably earlier in March than what I should have, but you get antsy, and uh, it was it was 
it went well. I mean, it never got out of, it never got off the ranch. In Glen Snell, of course, there was no NRCS people around. And a few days later, Glenn came out and we did a stem count. And I think it was stretching it to say 50% of the trees were dead. And the, the pasture had been rested for a year. Um, Sid Warner from out at uh, Cimarron had been leasing the ranch since the late 40s. And Willis Winrick was his main man and Willis understood what I was trying to do and no the the Warner ranches didn't have anybody here nor the Skinner ranch it was all neighbors that I called because they wanted to see how crazy and what was going on um, so that was 1984 that was an 80 I burned again in 85 and I burned again in 86 and you know the Flint Hills was burning every year and I had attended sometime in the 80s a beef symposium at K-State. Dr. Ham was the chair at the time, and they were talking about what they were doing in the Flint Hills with this, this deal and that deal and beef cattle. And I kept raising my hands and said, what's happening down in the Red Hills? And he kept going, we'll address that later. And finally... Late afternoon, he called me to the front as the meeting was being adjourned. And he basically said, you know, thank you for coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to know more about your Red Hills, you maybe ought to go to Oklahoma State. Huh. So I started in in 1984 keeping track of rainfall and stocking rate and burning schedules and that got to be quite lengthy and now remember in, in 1984 I had already cross-fenced the west cell in the four paddock system four pastures because they were right at a section apiece nobody else was doing anything like that around here um, but I was being encouraged by the range specialist, Glenn Snell, and um, he was taking me to Woodward, and we drove several times down to the uh, in Oklahoma to the southern part of the Flint Hills. And, uh, you know, I, was, I, I had my eyes open and my mind open because that's what you did with engineering and art. You had to be creative. You know, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the end product that was interesting me. It was the process, the process of burning. It wasn't the end product of the burn. It was the process of burning. It was a happening. In the art world in that period of time in the late 70s, there was these big happenings. That Burning Man now out in Utah, that was a happening that started in the 80s as a happening. So I was putting on a happening with my fellow neighbors out here to burn. And when they would burn, we would all go and uh, yeah, we we burnt and we, I, it was a good time. The guys from Comanche County helped, uh, Darren Jackson, Dean Gregg, uh, yeah, there was, and Eddie Coger and yeah, there was, the, we had a good 
<laughs> Ralph Einzel, you can never go broke putting in a water gap. <laughs> Ralph had amazing sayings, and his brother uh, Einzel from up by Greensburg. So it was, you know, it, there was a core group of nuts that burnt, and we didn't care what the neighbors thought because we'd all get together and have a good time. And it was obvious that, to me, it was obvious that we were making headways with the green, the green glacier. At that time, we didn't know it was the green glacier, but uh, yeah. So along in 85, I was depressed because I wasn't depressed. You know, I was only getting 50% of the trees. And, you know, I had to rest pastures. Uh, these were 2,000 acre pastures. And that took a big hit on income. And, um, you know, I was building fence and four wire cross fences and perimeter fences. And I had a Great Plains contract and I'd built several ponds. I think I've got five ponds and six pit ponds or five pit ponds or something like that I, that I'd built in the in that period of time. I was building a pit about every six months or a pond about every year. And uh, so that, that I bought that tree saw and uh, you know, it takes somebody putting their ass in the seat for the machine to work. Yes. And it had uh, studite build-up blades, and those blades would last approximately two to three hours, depending on how much time you spent in the dirt with it. But you could saw four or five trees a minute. Four or five trees a minute. Holy cow, man. Then you could, then you were eradicating cedar trees. So long in 87, 86, yeah, maybe it was the fall of 86, summer. I don't remember. It was someplace in that time. Don Quayle came to me as a young man. He was trapping, and he wanted to run the tree saw. And he finally talked me into it, and I thought, this kid will last a couple of days. And, you know, yeah. Uh, for damn near six months, seven days a week, from sunup to sundown, Don Quayle sawed trees on this ranch. And for every three to four hours he would saw, I would spend an hour building saw blades out of studite. That probably was starting to get really old really quick. I drank a lot of tequila. <laughs> <laughs> so along in 86, 87, someplace I met, because I had this one small pasture and it had been burnt and uh, David Blazy from up at Pratt, because he had been down here helping me burn, and he saw the tree saw, and he said, my dad can build a blade that would stay on there forever. I said, okay, when? And Floyd built me the first carbon chipped blade in late 87. That blade lasted 40 hours on the machine. 40 did you even know what to do with yourself? Um, put my ass in this chair and saw trees. And Ivan Blake was working with me then, and he 
sawed trees and we had a few customers that we sawed trees. You know, a thousand, we were charging $35 an hour. $35 an hour. And, you know, I was paying for the machine, the labor and the, the repairs and maintenance at 35 <clears throat> We sawed one guy's trees and his wife had marked the trees that she didn't want to saw with a little red ribbon. And we were on the other side and sawed all the trees down and the guy got really upset, and Ivan says, well, a little bit of Elmer's glue will solve that. I, <laughs> the customer wasn't, so I had not a couple of hours off. But <laughs> Who was that? Vandeveer. Okay. The auctioneer. Wow, that was an experience. But, um, yeah, so, night, and I... I was dealing then, uh, my customer basically was Jim Brass, uh, just south of us here about, what, eight or ten miles, and um, I thought the world of Jim Brass. And so in the summer of 1988, I saw in the High Plains Journal, I think it was, Ranching for Profit by Stan Parsons. <laughs> wow, that's that's a concept. There's profit in ranching? What? So I got a got myself a seat at it, took Ivan Blake and bef at intermission I went up to stand it and I paid for the school that was coming up in November. Ivan didn't want to go. He said that he he needed to stay here and take care of the ranch and for me to go. So in nineteen eighty eight I was introduced in November to Stan Parsons, the man forever changed my life. I have the most deep respect for Stan, uh, what he's done for me and the ranching community in the United States and Australia and Africa is truly amazing. At that same time, I was introduced to Alan Savory. I never attended holistic management, but I read all of the books I could get my paws on on Alan Savory. And the reason I thought so much of Stan Parsons was his economics. His economics. It was just his economics were superb. Now, thinking back to the five years I spent on trying to resolve and get a partition on this ranch, and the numbers and all of the estate planning, it was obvious to me that uh, economics and finances, and that was a, not a very strong suit of mine, was where I had to concentrate in order to make this ranch a working ranch. So, uh, yeah, and 1988 was the first time Harold Klein had said, oh, I've just read about this new processes where they where we split up these big pastures into smaller pastures and you rotate every two weeks, move cattle every two weeks. And I was going to Stan Parsons School and I said, let's do it. And um, I had a great planes contract. And when I got back, Stan had introduced us to the wagon wheel grazing. Um, I was building my first uh, grazing cell south of the highway which was a fat pig cut up with nine pastures to graze instead of one thousand acre and one 
about 900 acres of old farm ground, I had a grazing cell, 1988. That pasture system was burnt sometime in the about 1990 with a, a wildfire started off of 160. And Ivan had left me by then. He, I never can say Ivan worked for me because how can you say somebody worked for you when you learn from him? And Ivan was just the most observant person. He, he observed everything. And he, he arrived at conclusions on, based on his observations. It, he was rotating cattle in the 70s. I asked him why after attending stands, and he says, well, they needed more grass. Duh. T tell me a little bit about Ivan. He was, he was the foreman on Stump Smith before it broke up and got sold, correct? Yes. So and when Stump Smith broke up and sold, that was mid-late 80s, right around the time you were getting this place. That's when Ivan and I started working. He started working for me. And I always admired that Stump Smith place because all the ridges were clean and the little blue stem was just beautiful red. There weren't any cedar trees. And I always said to myself, I want the Skinner, the Alexander Ranch to look like the Stump Smith Ranch. Then I hired, I can't say I hired him because I paid him, but golly, I learned so much. Learned how he cleaned that ranch up by hand on foot with axes and saws and kept track of it. And now this ranch looks like that one and that ranch looks like this one because of change in management. So that was, that was. I guess coming from an ax and a bow saw or maybe a, you know, late seventies primitive chainsaw, riding in that Meyer cedar machine was probably just like it was amazing. <laughs> it was heaven. Ivan would, you know, spend, it was hard, I think about three hours of gas is what you had to, because if you got on a little bit of a slope uh, under three, uh, with over three hours, you probably were marginally going to not have, have power, but Ivan would get out and he smoked cigarettes a lot. And he would say, well, that's the damnedest thing I ever slept with. I can't, you know, because we were cleaning off, you know, Don had done almost all the ranch, but there were still places that we could get into and the custom work. So, yeah, that, um, that brings us up into about 1990. And then I got, I was taking in cattle from Peaster and Hearts, and they had a, a cowboy by the name of Lonnie Sutton that was working for them. And Lonnie... Uh, he had this amazing ability is a horseback. He was always there before the cattle knew that they were going to go there. This was my introduction to dogs, stock dogs, not pet dogs, but stock dogs because he always had dogs. And I was so amazed at, so long in 92, Lonnie uh, worked for me and, and worked for the Hearts Peaster group. And one day Lonnie and I are riding over south. And this was this was almost five years, six years after being broken down into nine nine pastures. Lonnie says, 
I don't know what you're doing here, but whatever you're doing here, you need to do over the rest of the ranch. And that was moving cattle, rotating cattle. Now, here at the corral cell, I had a gentleman from Oakwood, Oklahoma, and he would bring in cattle and I would rotate through four paddock, four pastures, 600 acres apiece, hire a bunch of kids to come out and help me. I still know them now they're, <laughs> yeah. They're not kids anymore. They're, they're... not kids anymore. <laughs> and we would have a hell of a good time moving cattle. And we'd bring in that herd and it would be 600 or, or more. And we'd bring in that herd in July and Jimmy would cut off the big end, which was probably maybe two truckloads. So maybe a hundred head. So Jimmy Purvine would bring up roughly 600 head and sometime in July we'd bring him into the corral and he would take off the largest hundred head and or more or less, more, and uh, put the rest of them out. And this was in a four pasture rotation. Well, one year we were coming to the house and we had a major wreck. And it, um, I had cattle four miles west, I had cattle five miles east, I had cattle five miles south, I had cattle north. And it took Lonnie and I several days to put that herd back together. And we got it back together and moved on to the next year. And I said, you know, this is stupid. Uh, why don't we just use one of those four pastures and use it early intensive and rotate the other three? Bingo. Oh, wow. That's look. So I did that for five years. And Lonnie kept saying, I don't know how this is happening, but we were riding in big blue stem store high and the cattle. I was keeping records, keeping records of rainfall, my stocking rate, how many pounds I took off per acre and was falling right where Stan Parsons said, over Turnover is how you make money. And I could, you know, I had Oklahoma State coming up here several times, and all of the professors would say, well, our research shows that rotational grazing decreases animal performance. You don't have good animal performance, and blah, blah, blah. The animal doesn't perform, blah, 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 blah. And I'm going, uh, how come my numbers don't say that? Well, their research took out management. And that's why I was making it work because of management. There was one July, the first, and the cattle were, the early intensives were up in the spring, which is a marginally watered pasture anyway. And I was going, uh, yeah, we're, it's overgrazed. It doesn't look good. Well, a couple of days later, we got several inches of rain and I relaxed. And, um, yeah, there, that happened several times that period in July to get to the middle of July for hundred day stocking. But Jimmy always had the most perfect 
conditioned cattle there were. I mean, they would come in. I was, I was, I had placed times where two and a half pounds of gain a day on that early intensity, two and a half pounds. His general cattle were going just right at two pounds. You know, I would show this to all the college professors. Well, the animal performance. Uh, yeah, okay, explain this. Well, they couldn't. And, but they kept bringing, Oklahoma State kept bringing students up. And then somehow uh, Fort Hayes State, and I still know several of the professors back in the, that period of time where they would call and say, well, you got somebody doing research on this or that. I'd say, bring them on. And I met Eric Rumquist, who had been on this ranch in the 60s and knew the natural bridge. Uh, Stan Roth was his high school biology teacher, and Stan has been on the ranch in the last five years, and Eric, uh, his student, has retired, and Eric kept track of, he had sites all over the ranch looking at uh, threatening and endangered species and how many. I think, Brian, it was something like 80% of all the reptilian uh, four-legged creepy crawlers in Kansas is found on this ranch. Um, I, you know, I kept developing water uh, pipelines. Uh, in 88, 89 was the first pipeline system I put in to water the south. And uh, I just... It was that period of time in the 90s with Lonnie being around that uh, over south, he, he says, you know, Ted, the more we move these cattle, the better they look and the better the grass looks. So we went into the co-op and I bought some bullshit electric fence and a little 12-volt charger and fenced off what was then the old farm ground. And, of course, that didn't work because deer ran through it, but... It was enough for Lonnie and for me to see from Lonnie's observations that planted grass and native grass grazing wasn't the same. It, you know, it was just different because the soil fertility was gone in the old farm fields that were planted to grass and I hadn't broken up the hard pan and the grass stand was only producing not quite a thousand pounds an acre, but boy, when you'd put 600 head. One time, Hearts and Peaster had nine, 880 head of fat steers over there. And we removed them. We removed them about every seven to eight days, 10 days. And that, that was another wreck that happened on the highway. That's why I built the South Corrals, because we were coming across the highway. And it was another one of those, yeah, well, we'll spend a couple of days putting this Heard back together, and we were successful. So, 1997, the NRCS hired a range specialist by the name of Dwayne Rice, and he was from Oklahoma State. He'd been on the ranch in the 80s when Oklahoma State had recognized, or the SRM in Oklahoma and Kansas had recognized my grazing practices, and Dwayne was... SRM, S Society for Range Management. Yes, sir. And so Dwayne and I developed a really strong relationship, and uh, Dwayne took me to places that, yeah, and that's 
1998, I went back to ranching for profit because I took Dwayne with me. And on the way home, no, this would have been in 2000 and 2001. Um, on the way home, I was charged with um, making a drought plan with all the rainfall and grazing records that I had. So Dwayne and a young lady that works for the work for the conservation district put together the the drought plan that now the national drought mitigation has on their website for Kansas and I've that that document became quite lengthy and uh, I, I Dwayne was the one and and the technician was the one that put it together but it was because I was anal about keeping track of numbers and then a, a very good friend, Calvin Adams, who is a retired brain specialist, uh, brain surgeon from Florida. Uh, Dwayne had him down here, and Calvin made the statement, to manage, you must measure. And wow, how that fit together with all of my rainfall and grazing records. And so, yeah, that's when I really started in breaking up the ranch even more and more into smaller paddocks. And that whole period of time there in the early 2000s, there was several years where my dog Buck and I handled over a thousand head of yearling steers a year. There was two years and then the third year, not quite as, as intense, but uh, yeah, it can be done. Of course I was in my fifties and, uh, yeah, it, um, it was long days, but the reward at the end was that I was making money and uh, through being introduced with Stan Parsons and then David Pratt and Ranching for Profit, it was obvious that the only three years that I didn't have a profit of, a good-sized profit, was the years where I had a drought and had to destock. Um, but I had saved money in a special account to cover that. Um, you know, it wasn't labeled and there wasn't money there. I just had assets that would that were disposable that I could rely on to get me through those those years where I had to reduce stocking rate. Um, it was that, and that's when the in '97 when Dwayne came. I had a new neighbor to the west, and we burnt from the Lake City Road to the Sun City Road. That's five miles along 160, a mile deep, over two miles, a mile and a half deep over the next two mi the next mile, and then the next two miles was was almost three and a half miles. So there was approximately six or seven thousand acres in that burn. I spent 40 hours putting the burn together. We had uh, 60 people here. We had 35 units. We had big tank trucks worth of, worth of uh, water sitting on the ranch. Um, and we had some ladies cooked all of these meals for us. And um, it was a success. We started early in the morning and by three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, it was finished, and there was no problems. Uh, 
Did it do a lot of good? Yes, but there was some ground that all it did was turn black, but there was some ground that because of deferred grazing and just how it was managed, uh, we burned a lot of trees then. I never stacked trees. I said way back when I got the tree saw, I had so much money to put in gasoline to saw trees. I had a diesel tractor that had big weights on the back wheels so he could pull, it was a Massey 65. And several times I, I had a tree pusher made and several times I was pushing trees downhill and when you get downhill, uh, you don't have enough traction to back up the hill. That can get pretty exciting. <laughs> so it took less than a couple of days and I said, you know, this whole deal is about energy. Energy to cut trees, energy to move trees. Then you got to deal with the big pile of trees as energy to when you burn. So I said, where is, where is my budget going to go for energy? It's going to go in to saw trees. So that's the reason I never stacked a tree. And there's ecological reasons that they, they were talking about. Now, this was in the 80s, the 80s. You know, nobody I, else was around to talk to. I, I swear, yesterday, I drove over a tree that you cut in the 80s and burnt in the 80s and is still there in the pasture. Yeah, yeah. I used to tell people, they'd say, well, why don't you stack them? I said, well, you know, you don't need to be driving around out there in the first damn place with a pickup. Um, they do make really good stops on four-wheelers. You can stop real fast. Um, you also seem like you hit them just right. They can go into the sidewall of a pickup but tire. But, hey, you know, that, that was my decision. All of this was done without any cost share. Yes, I had a Great Plains contract to fence and to develop water and a couple of other programs to develop water. But there was no cost share on brush, re brush, or brush removal. So, um, yeah, I, I used to know how much it cost to reclaim. But, uh, yeah, the, a couple of people pointed out that what I have done is I pay taxes on this ranch anyway. And to reclaim it, was less than what it would cost to buy buy other land uh, someplace close. And so, you know, my base of production went up as we uncovered more and more grass. Uh, the grass species started expressing themselves. Uh, accessibility across the ranch became, <laughs> yeah, there was places where cattle couldn't get. Anderson Creek Wildfire was nature pushing the reset button. So that was in March, late March of 2016. Yes. I mean, we know that. Yeah. I was just making sure yeah. everybody else knew that. You know, remembering in the 1984, when I came onto the ranch, I had basically three pastures and a bull pasture of 250 acres. By the time 2000 came... I think I was getting close to 24, 25 paddocks. Now it's what, 
I've got, uh, let's see, there's 22 in the south cell. There's 27 in the corral cell. We're back to four over west. Um, and then the bull pasture, which is fenced off into four right now. But between the bull pasture at 252 acres <coughs> and um, the changes I made a couple years ago down on the south side, I, I moved some fences on the south side, kind of small, made some made some of the wagon wheels um, a little narrower on the far end so we could strip graze them. I've got about 13, 13.5% of the ranch, so like 800 acres, 750 acres, something like that, that's set up now for strip grazing, which is you know, almost infinite number of paddocks when you do the stock density right. And just realizing we're talking starting in 1988 and we're still developing. We're still developing, or Brian is now developing. And just to see this year the forage production has just been extremely phenomenal. Um, it, yeah, and who knows with this climate and how vari variation, how variant it is, is where we'll be in a couple of years. But you've got to adapt to the climate. You can't, we've got to adapt. That was one of the things that Alan Savory talked about, about invasive species. And right now I'm thinking old world blue stem. I have tried to, to control it chemically all I did was piss it off and it grows better. So we've got to adapt our grazing on our species that graze it and we can't control it. We've got to utilize it. So there, there was something Alan Savory said, um, I believe it was in 2016 when we went up to no-till on the plains and listened to Alan Savory yeah. speak. Might not have been in that speech, but it was it was kind of in that time frame for me because I'd just done the holistic management training up in uh, Hastings, Nebraska, and I was reading a lot of his writings. And he said something that really stuck with me. <coughs> I don't remember the exact quote, but it was kind of like, you know, what's the difference between a native and invasive species or a native and a naturalized species? Well, the parallel is, what's the difference between a grave robber and an archaeologist? <coughs> yeah. A couple hundred years, right? Yeah. So, you know, we look at a, I look at a plant like old world blue stem, you know, and, and that, that family of grasses. It's, it's a novel plant in this environment. And, yeah, it, it's, it's taking over. It's converting areas. I think we can slow it down, and I feel like it's just another management challenge to overcome and another, another species, another type of forage to incorporate into the forage mix that we're trying to run through a ruminant animal. And whether we find some sheep that like it, it'll graze it to death and really do well on it, or we get cows that know how to eat it and know how to use it and actually, and actually like it. That's just a challenge we're going to have to we're going to have to overcome as an industry similar to Johnson Grass. Johnson Grass, it's got some problems. There's some things wrong with it, but it also makes pretty good feed for quite a bit of the year. Old World Blue Stem, they don't seem to like it a whole lot except for about two to three weeks in September, and then they kind of ignore it until January, February. 
And I've seen him kind of really hammer it pretty hard in the dormant season. So that's, it's another way to look at it. Um, you know, the spraying comment, I was by there two weeks ago, the, that spot over in the bull pasture. <laughs> it's, so for everybody out in podcast land, I think I've talked about this spot before, and it's about a I don't know, six or 10 foot diameter circle that we sprayed for three years to try to kill the old world. Now there's kind of like a dead circle with a few crappy weeds growing in it, and it's surrounded by a ring of old world bluestem. It's spraying; it just makes it mad. I mean, it spraying brush is is a great mechanism to make you know the companies that sell that crap to make them money because it's not a cure; it's just a treatment, and it's a treatment you have to keep going to reapply and reapply and reapply. So I'm more the mind to try to, you know, utilize the quote invasive species, but at the same time, you know, then somebody will throw the argument at me. Oh, well, cedar trees invasive. Why don't you figure out how to use it? Like, hold up. (laughs) You don't understand how fast cedar trees are taking over the Great Plains. A. B, you don't understand their water usage. We can get into all that, but... You know, the cedar trees, the brush encroachment, the loss of the loss of native range habitat, not just a brush encroachment, not conversion of farmland, but conversion to hunting properties, yeah. conversion to house farms. That's something I think a lot of people don't realize is we're losing our native the 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 3% remnant prairie that we have, we're losing it now. Like the current rate of prairie loss and native prairie loss is greater than it was when they broke it out the first time with the plow. We're losing it faster to urban sprawl and a woody encroachment than we ever did to the plow. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to be an issue. Like nobody seems to care because, oh, we'll just move to Kansas where real estate's cheap. Okay, fine. You know, got to understand we got some, you know, we've got our own set of issues here too. So, uh, I, in your experience, so you've been here on this land over 40 years now. What, what do you think a new operator should know? Somebody that's wanting to transition, it, Somebody's wanting to transition from an office job to come out and work on land or somebody that has land in a more conventional operation they want to transition to something more regenerative? Well, the Natural Resource Conservation Service has an office in every county in the United States. Uh, not every county. There's a few cities that don't have them. It's a free source of information. And they're not telling you how to do anything. They're just giving you alternatives to what you can do. And they'll tell you if there's money available to help you accomplish it. That's the first, that's one of the things is get educated on who you can turn to. I am also a very adamant and firm believer in ranching for profit. I see the Noble Foundation has a, short course like that. Uh, I also know that holistic management, which is similar, 
uh, in concept to ranching for profit is get yourself educated to what you're doing. Um, stay out of the coffee shops. Um, yeah, and just keep answering, asking the question, what went well, what could go better, and uh, be resolved that there are going to be down times that you learn the most from and enjoy the up times because there's also the downside that's going to come. Um, it's, yeah, don't, yeah, how do you get started? That's that's way out of my realm. Uh, I was very fortunate to have people, my my grandfather and great-grandfather in, in establishing this ranch and... Uh, when I got it, uh, control of it, I knew that I didn't know. I didn't know what it was. I just wanted to see what the ranch looked like. There was some damn many trees on it. And even after 16, I drive through places and I go, I never knew it looked like that. Huh. Wow. That's really nice. You know, uh, the water in the canyons just totally amazed me. And my mother rode, rode out here in the in the tw late 20s and the 30s, and before she died several years ago, 20-some years ago, she would tell me that she remembered riding her horse and seeing water in these canyons. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's how to make the business. Uh, you got to make the business. You can't be the business. You've got to make the business. Um, it's, uh, it's a challenge, I, you know. We've got to have some young people involved in this ranching community, and that's a real concern of mine, the fractionalization that's happening with deer hunting out of uh, absentee landowners that don't live in the, the community, even if they do, how do you get them involved? Uh, Out-of-state absentee landowners and producers that, you know, uh, don't give a flip about the ecology and the environment and, uh, you know, the web of life that we are so precious to be part of, but we're not responsible for it. But that's a, it's very philosophical. I, uh, I, I can't, uh, I can't. Anyway, there's another thing that happened in the, that period of time in 97, 98, um, because of Dwayne Rice coming and my, uh, my connections with Oklahoma State, we were asked, we, several of the ranchers that Dwayne was working with and the uh, NRCS person in uh, Comanche County and had been asked to put together a panel to go down to the Noble Foundation and the Noble Foundation is a really great asset in Ardmore, Oklahoma, that Noble put together with his money that is involved in research and agriculture. And we went down there and had a had a real good presentation on what what was happening in the Red Hills. And in that in that meeting down there, there was some uh, adult beverage stimulization fluids made available and we uh, the six or seven of us decided that 
we could come back up here to Kansas and have something like the Noble Foundation. So we developed the Comanche Pool Prairie Resource Foundation um, in 1998, and uh, it's still functioning. Uh, we've we've gotten over three million dollars into this area, Kansas, uh, mainly Comanche and Barber County, some in Clark, and a little bit up in Kiowa County to uh, cut down cedar trees to stop the green glacier. Uh, we're applying for a grant right now to get a coordinator, and we have uh, more money available to put on more coffee shop meetings and ranch tours and trying to educate and get people to understand what uh, what owning land and being an operator of this 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 environment this biome requires and uh, what your what your responsibilities to it uh, you know uh, that's that's uh, part of my whole, my main focus now, right now, is working to working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Partners Program to get this grant in the stage and presented to the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, which is called NIFWIF. So there's a lot of money out there that's being donated to NIFWIF, Cargill, Burger King, McDonald's, you just go down through the list of non-agricultural, yeah, Cargill's agricultural foundations that are given, and we're not talking $10,000, we're talking millions of dollars into helping locally driven organizations to keep our grasslands intact. Um, not for corn and soybean farming. Not grasslands. Grasslands, and it's we the the mechanisms are being put into place. There's there's monies. There is there is funds available to help, but it's getting some of the producers to understand why they're wanting this done, and it comes down to a couple of things: air quality and quantity sequestered carbon, and uh, water. And they're all driven by soil health. And that's the biggest issue we have is the health of the soil. We've got three things that we need to figure out in the web of life why it exists. That's the sun shines, it rains, and there's six inches of soil. And if either three of those is out of balance, uh, our soil and our soil health uh, is paramount. I, uh, it's just back in the 80s and 90s, I would tell people, <clears throat> I dug a hole and found some found worms in the ranch on the on the native prairie. Yeah, all right, so what? Yeah, the manure is all in phase one and it goes back into the ground. And yeah, I've got tumblebugs. Yeah, so what? Now, guess what? That's the thing that people are looking at. Wow, that's cool. That's really great. Uh, you know, we need to educate more people. The, the, the social media thing, 
I didn't have that. I, you know, I didn't go to coffee shops. I didn't, there wasn't nobody I wanted, I could talk to. You know, it was just stay out here and keep. Stay out here and be weird. Yeah, I didn't have to be weird. I am weird. But, you know, just having the range specialist and having the DCs that I had in my life and Stan Parsons and the EL that I became so involved with. We're still involved. We're having our 175th meeting next week in Amarillo. 175 meetings. Wrap your head around that. Yeah. It's a strong, strong organization. That's great stuff. You know, a lot of a lot of things to think about. So we've been at this a little over an hour and a half. I know you want to get back to football and Formula One. <laughs> so um, thank you for all your time today. And uh, I guess if anybody's got any questions, comments, direct them through me, redhillsrancher at gmail.com. <coughs> Links in the show notes. Um, I guess that'll do it for us. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you. Love you, Dad. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.